Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In his paintings, performance art, and academic work, the interdisciplinary artist Dr. Fahamu Peku addresses concerns around contemporary representations of black men. He explores how these images impact both the reading and performance of black masculinity. Later this hour, Fahamu Peku will tell us about the space between his new installation on view at the Hambidge Cross-Pollination Art Lab. We'll also celebrate St. David's Day, the Welsh national holiday. First, a new exhibition at the Hudgens Center for Art and Learning in Gwinnett features works by artists whose subject reveal lost and endangered birds, along with works celebrating nature with birds and their habitats. Three Billion is a group show co-sponsored by Georgia Audubon. Artist Laura W. Adams is the curator. She joins us now with another artist in the show, Chris Condon. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. We are so glad to be here. Thanks, Lois. Would you tell us what the title Three Billion represents? Yes, uh, so Three Billion is a reference to a study that came out right before the pandemic in October of, I guess that was 2019. Science Magazine published a study looking at bird populations over the last 50 years. And to their surprise, they found that we have lost a third of our bird population in the last 50 years, which amounts to approximately 3 billion birds. And one of the more shocking parts of the study was that this loss of bird life reached across many different biomes of bird species. So it didn't just affect like wetlands birds or shorebirds, it affected many, many different types of birds in, their, in, in different biomes. So that, that's what the name of the show refers to. That is a staggering statistic. 
How do you each address the crisis of birds in your work? Let's see. So I'm the curator of the show, but I'm also an artist in the show. And with the pieces that I have in the show, I focused on different biomes of birds that are in distress. But I created these works as sort of a celebration of the birds and from their point of view, as if you ask the bird, if you had an ideal world for you to live in, what would that world look like? And so I tried to create those worlds for these birds. And so they're beautiful depictions of their idealized environment, maybe a place that they would live in if they weren't under such distress. It's filled with native plants and native species and no predators. And except for the hint in one piece, there's no hint of um, human involvement in their lives. Oh, a perfect world. Yeah, for my pieces, I um, my work usually is a lot more about dealing with the wonder and the beauty that I kind of see of especially the nature around me, especially the local birds. And then Laura had mentioned the show to me and asked me to be in it. And I knew of the uh, article already. And it really got me to be thinking I need to sort of somehow incorporate what I usually do, but bring more of a message to it. So I felt like I started researching and saw ways to incorporate how I feel about the birds and their beauty, but also kind of hints of a little bit of sadness and their challenges. Yeah. Chris, how does the artwork you create reveal your love for the environment, your regard for the environment? I think it does in the sense that it always starts with things I've seen usually, like a different possible bird that may may have not been able to identify. And it's just my ode to these birds and this nature that's around me. What materials do you work with? I definitely like to use wood. I also use a lot of reclaimed wood. And sometimes animals and birds I make start with a piece of wood I possibly found on a walk. Often like I find certain thing that looks like it could be a head or a neck or a beak. Sometimes I even find bones and different parts that I work out and incorporate into the birds. Another way of sort of bringing the whole material full cycle. Yeah, so you're not only depicting the environment, you're using it. It appears right there in your work. Laura, I read that you don't use paint to create your art. Would you talk about the technique and materials you use? Uh, Sure. Yes, I don't use any paint. I create these very elaborate, what I call paintings, but they're not paintings made with paint. They're paintings made with paper. It's a collage process that I developed over the last 25 years. I've made it quite complicated over those years. And I use a lot of colored, textured, and pattern papers as the colors in the piece. And I layer them with a clear acrylic medium. And the papers often, depending on the type of paper they are, will often become transparent. And it allows me to layer one pattern paper over another pattern paper over another and another tissue paper or textured paper over another. And one paper shows through another and shows through another. It's much like painting in a way, just with a different medium. And where do you get your papers? They come from all over the world. In this particular series, I focused a lot on with Japanese washi paper which come in all sorts of beautiful colors and patterns. 
and textures. And Japanese art often depicts birds. And I've always loved the compositions of Japanese nature art. And I found that their papers were really conducive to me exploring birds and creating bird feathers out of, of layers of paper. Oh, and the process sounds so entailed. It makes me wonder how long it takes you to create a piece with this technique of multi-layered paper. They are time-consuming. I call it a labor of love. Truly. (laughs) You know, I've been working on these six pieces in the show for the last year and a half. So, you know, I don't work on them all the time for a year and a half, but I mean, they do take a significant amount of time. I mean, weeks to sometimes a couple of months to finish. Chris, I'm curious with your using materials that you find outdoors, which comes first? Do you just collect things on your walks that strike your fancy, or do you have a particular sculpture in mind and then go seek the wood or outdoor materials that enable you to execute it? Usually the materials first. You know, I've always sort of collected things when I on walks ever since I was younger, sticks and rocks and all various things. And now I just have a studio. I call them my souvenirs. It's full of souvenirs. I have like an area of possible bird beaks, an area of possible bird wings. And I can kind of use it as a reference when I go back. So if I know I'm looking for something that may fit this size bird or type of bird, I will go to that. Oh, wow. Another artist whose work is featured in your show, Kate Breakey's Small Death series of prints are very powerful and evoke tremendous sadness, really sorrowful pieces. Would you describe these images and how she depicts them? Yes, Kate's work encompasses an 80-foot-long wall in the Hudgens um, Center show. It's two montages of work. One is in an ellipse and one is in a grid pattern. And from a distance, the different groupings are, look really beautiful. And then when you move in closer, you realize that they are actually different types of photographic prints of birds that have been killed due to some human interference. The ellipse montage are birds killed by vehicle collisions and in some window strikes and you'll see ducks and herons and hummingbirds and birds of prey. And these are birds, they're life-size, that they are the actual birds and they've been placed on photographic photogram paper and put out in the sun and the sun sears an image into the paper. So you can see their wings and the outlines of their wings and, and a lot of the details and their sizes. And then, and then you move away from that to the other part of the wall is a grid pattern of birds and they look really beautiful. Mm. They're hand painted photographs and they are actually birds that hit windows, which is a big theme of one of the reasons for the declines of the bird populations or window strikes, as we call it. And some of these birds hit Atlanta skyscrapers. And the Georgia Audubon folk have a permit to collect a lot of these birds that hit the Atlanta skyscrapers. 
and use them for study and education. And we were able to ship some of the Atlanta birds out to Kate Breakey and she recreated them as she photographed them and then hand painted them and made them into these beautiful portraits. But then when you realize what they are portraits of, it's very sad, but it's also really powerful. And then you see the whole exhibit all together and you realize that these are a lot of birds that were killed by human contact, but it's just a fraction of what happens on a regular basis. When the pandemic hit last year, people were sheltering in place. People who were able to continue work, many more were working from home, still the case, and not driving as much. Has the amount of harmful emissions or pollution harmful to birds and wildlife gone down? Well, I don't know if the science is in on that, but I do know the pandemic caused a significant rise in interest in birds because people were stuck at home and they started looking out their windows and noticing what was going on around them. I imagine the pandemic has helped a bit with vehicle collisions because there, there were fewer cars out on the street, but I don't have any information as to whether it's helped them in other ways. I did read something or I heard something where I think in California, the California mountain lion gets struck a lot by vehicles. Ah. And I think populations are up a little bit this since the pandemic. It's quite interesting. Three billion. This exhibition is co-sponsored by Georgia Audubon, the bird-focused organization that promotes serious conservation and education and just motivates the joy of birding. Laura, you are a longtime birder and impassioned about birds. What has it been like working with Georgia Audubon to create this show? They have been wonderful. I couldn't have asked for a better partner. They are kind of friends of mine now, and they've helped create an exhibit in the show about things that we can do, individuals can do to help our declining bird populations. They helped me with some of the research, and they helped me with shipping dead birds out to (laughs) Cape Freaky. We're working on several events together. I'm speaking at their monthly meeting, and we're doing an event with an ambassador hummingbird that lives with one of the Georgia Audubon members. It's a real hummingbird that is going to come to the Hudson Center to meet people. And we're going to talk about the um, pollinator species like the hummingbirds. And th- this particular hummingbird cannot fly because it hit a window. Oh. Yeah, but he's awful cute and he's a wonderful (laughs) ambassador for his species (laughs) and it gives you hope you know meeting him his name is Sibley and then we're also doing an event together called Liberation and Hope it's a webinar celebrating black environmentalists and joy and liberation with art in the African-American community oh fantastic I I can't say enough good things about the group. Chris, you've been exploring outdoors since you were a little boy. It sounds like that has been ongoing. Are you also a birder? I am a very, very novice birder. I was more 
introduced by them by seeing them. And as I do my work, I kind of research that way for sure. So I do love it. I am not very good at identifying, but I sure do like to watch them and draw them and try and ask a lot of questions when I do run into birders while I'm out hiking. One more artist whose work I'd like for you to talk about is Pam Longabardi. She has an amazing piece featured in Three Billion. Would you describe her rainbows and in paradise and what she was trying to convey? That's an amazing piece. When you first look at the piece, you're not sure what you're looking at. It's black panels and there's a bunch of Bic lighters strung in this rainbow pattern, kind of in the snake-like pattern along these large black panels. And you look at it and you say, gosh, that's just a bunch of Bic lighters. And then you find out what the piece really is. She worked with a scientist who collected these Bic lighters from Lazen albatross nests out on the island of Midway out in the Pacific Ocean. And these Bic lighters had apparently been plastic pollution in the ocean. They were floating in the ocean. They look from the albatross's perspective like squid or fish. And the albatross scooped up the lighter and swallowed it out of the ocean thinking it was food, then brought the lighters back to their nests and they regurgitated the lighters to feed to their chicks. And the chicks would often, I I assume these, Pam will say the chicks would die from having ingested these lighters. And so the lighters were picked up out of these albatross nests. And she made this piece of art out of the lighters. And it's shocking to hear the story and then to see the actual lighters that made this very strange journey back to Atlanta to tell this story. Oh, the piece is astonishing. I mean, the piece is stunning in the multi-layered meanings too. I mean, if you just look at it initially, it's kind of pretty Mm -hmm. seeing the colors. You think, oh, what a lovely array of colors and objects. And then you look closer and see that they are lighters and learn the story you are just told. And it is tragic. It's tragic. And in the Lazen albatross is a species in great distress. So it's even more tragic in that regard. Well, this is sobering. And yet there's some hope and certainly beauty throughout the statement, the powerful statement you are making with this show. Laura W. Adams, Chris Condon, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Lois. Sculptor Chris Condon and artist curator Laura W. Adams. The exhibition Three Billion is on view at the Hudgens Center for Art and Learning in Gwinnett through April 24th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Here in the U.S., we know a great deal about St. Patrick's Day. With parades and parties, everyone is Irish on St. Paddy's Day. And the Scots celebrate their heritage by honoring the poet Robbie Burns, their national hero. That's held on or around the poet's birthday, January 25th. There is a third group of Celts with their own national holiday— Today, March 1st, the Welsh honor St. David. Most Americans know very little about Wales, much less St. David's Day. To help remedy that, I spoke with Roy Noble, a writer, broadcaster, and presenter with BBC Radio Wales. I began by asking Mr. Noble why outside of Wales so little is known about St. David's Day. It is not as buoyant as St. Patrick. The reason is, I think, that we Welsh are, are the shy Celts, you see, behind the Scots and the Irish. Uh, I suppose that's one of the reasons. I'm going to shock you now as well. Oh, you know you mentioned St. Patrick. Yes. Uh, there's a very, very great argument historically that he was, in fact, Welsh, and he was kidnapped by Irish raiders from Wales and taken over there. Uh, to see them right. They were so, rather yeah. rowdy back then, weren't they? <laughs> Uncontrolled. Uncontrolled. Well, <laughs> so, blame. yeah, but but St. David, going back some time, and he, in fact, died in 589. Um, so we're going back several, several centuries, indeed. We commemorate on March the 1st, St. David's Day, which is the date of his death in 589. No one is quite sure mm. when he was born. But he was a teacher, a preacher, uh, a philosopher, frugal to the nth degree and absolutely pious, no excesses at all, and I'm quoting him here, lest he be found to be wanton, he said. Oh, my. <laughs> well, you have it from him. He's making sure for posterity <laughs> that he gets, you know, only the most moral portrayal. That's right. And we celebrate his day. We don't have a day off, but um, we have a celebration, usually in the form of a nice death vote. Uh, Nestead was a Welsh word, which literally means, eistedd means to sit, uh, to sit in a group or to sit in a, in a chair in which you won a prize. But it's a gathering, a cultural gathering of singing and poetry and dance. And uh, we have a national one, which is unique in Europe in that it travels to a different part of Wales every year. Did I in my 
talk about Welsh in the U.S. Right. I read that, in fact, a Welshman discovered America. Well, yes, his name was Ap Myrig, so they say. Um, he was a Welshman who was working as a, a clerk in the Bristol docks. Now, in Wales, we have this habit of dropping surnames. Mm-hmm. We slip Ap in, A-P, which means son of. So my son is Richard. Really, he should be called Richard Ap Roy, mm-hmm. and the noble is dropped. Um, but he was an Ap Myrig. And now, um, I know I've heard of Amerigo Vespucci, the Italian, and so on, but there's more credence given to Ap Myrig, who gave his name to America, in Clark's, um, you know, documentation and so on. So, so conceivably, we could all have been speaking Welsh instead of English. Well, do you know, Lois, there is this debate, and I don't know if it's true, that when the American um, Declaration of Independence was written, Apparently, there was an argument in the room because of all the men who had gathered together. Should it be written in English or in German or in Welsh? Because there were quite a few Welsh people in there as well. And uh, we lay claim to quite a few of your presidents as well. Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, John Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams. Yes, ones. All good so far. Yeah. Are we covering the ground? Even the Confederate president, (laughs) Jefferson Davis. (laughs) Oh, I guess that Jefferson must figure in there. Well, let's talk about the language, speaking of the language. Um, It's very intimidating. Where does it originate and how how do you go about with so few vowels? The, The Welsh language has two main sounds which present problems to some people. One is the double L, the sh sound, because so many place names are um, starting with a double L, Llanvihangel, because Llan means the land around the church. Llanelli is another one. Uh, Llanurda is another one. Llandevri is another one. And then the other one is, in a way, easier. It's the CH that you'd get in a Scottish loch. Mm-hmm. We have that. Uh, the Welsh word for, for laughter is chwerthin. Mm. Well... The language certainly um, has served many Welsh poets, literary figures, singers very well. Oh, yes, yes, it has, of course. Uh, Now, a man you'd know in in America, Dylan Thomas, of Of course, course. who was based in in New York, he was not Welsh-speaking. We have a population of about 3 million in Wales, and only 20% are Welsh-speaking, you see. So he, his poetry was in English, but there are, there are poems, you know, and sayings uh, in other ways as well. I mean, there's a saying, for instance, Gwell i'n gair gwir na chan gair teg, which means better one true word than a hundred fair ones. Mm-hmm. And just to test you, I, we did think we had the longest place name in the world, which has 58 letters, which means... St. Mary's Church in a hollow of white hazel near the swirling whirlpool of the Church of St. Tisilio with a red cave. That's poetic itself. (laughs) But there is a Maori one that beats it with 85, apparently. Oh, okay. Well, so if only 20% of that rather small national population speaks the Welsh language, is there a movement to have more people become fluent in Welsh? 
Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, it's very vibrant. In fact, most towns now have a Welsh school. You can go to a Welsh school from the age of three and keep on there. You go in what we call our primary schools up to the age of 11 through the Welsh medium education, and then at the age of 11 you transfer to a secondary school which takes you up to 18 through the medium of Welsh as well. So there is a great movement. certainly have made us feel welcome. I can't wait to visit places together there, and I thank you so much. Well, no, my pleasure. And, and the thing is, Wales, truly, with only a population of three million, Wales is a village, so if you visit and don't call in, we'll know about it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I would love to call in. It'll be our particular pleasure. That's the Welsh word for many, many thanks to you. Oh, and, and the Welsh toast, by the way, yes. if, you're, if you're raising a glass, which I'll do for you later, is Yechida, good Yechida. health. and yeah. the same to you. And the same to you indeed. Roy Noble is a writer, broadcaster and presenter with BBC Radio Wales. Today, the Welsh quietly celebrate their national holiday, St. David's Day, here at WABE, our celebration is thanks to our Welsh colleague, Richard Firth. And here is one of the world's best-known Welshmen, Baritone Bryn Terval. I have dwelt neath southern skies where the summer never dies. But my heart is in the mountains of my home. I can see the little homestead on the hill. I can hear the magic music of the rain. There is nothing to compare with the love that once was there in that lonely little homestead on the hill. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. Atlanta author Daryl Farley's first book, I Will Be Here, is an illustrated children's storybook written from a black father's perspective, vowing to teach, motivate, listen, and love his children as they grow older together in life. When I spoke with Daryl Farley in August, he talked about the inspiration for the book. 
Well, I had just finished reading my son's uh, children's book. I always read him a bedtime story. It's kind of one of our favorite bonding moments that we have with each other. And um, after I read it, it just kind of hit me that there weren't many books speaking from a uh, father's perspective and mainly from a black father's perspective. It hit me and I was like, maybe I should write him a book, you know, just from my perspective to him. And I told my wife and she told me, you know, maybe you should publish a book for them. And that led to I Will Be Here. Correct. Something that I've always wanted to tell my sons, I guess, just from me not having a father figure when I was younger. So it's kind of something that I always wanted to just let my kids know that I'll always be here for them, just speaking from the heart. And the book kind of goes through different milestones that I felt like I missed out on with my father and that I wanted to make sure that I was there for them. It's a very sweet story. Can you give us just an overview of the plot, the gist of the story? So it starts off with me talking to my wife's uh, belly with my first son in her um, stomach and just letting them know that I'll always be here because I know the importance of black fathers in their children's lives. And it goes on a journey from when he's born until he's, you know, reaches different uh, milestones during school and uh, college, his career. And when he even when he starts his own family, I'm always there with him, including my wife as he has his kids, making sure he did the same thing that I am doing for him, just talking to his kids and just being in their lives. You mentioned that your father wasn't around for much of your youth. Would you say that absence of a relationship with your dad influenced the creation of this book? Uh, Yes, heavily. A lot of things that I wanted from him is kind of the... I always say he made me the father that I I am today because of the things that I wanted and that I didn't uh, receive. So I know when I became a father that those are the things that I wanted to give and instill into my kids. I wondered here, is this book as much a story that seeks to complete what a child in a single-parent household is experiencing? as it is racial. Yes, for both. That's what a lot of my uh, reviews that I got back from writing the story was, you know, it's from a black father's uh, perspective, but it's all from, also from a single parent home, just from the father, just being there, even if the parents are not together, just making sure that they have a a relationship so the child will feel, you know, the, the love from both parents. Let's talk about the illustrations. They're lovely. How did you find the artist who painted them? Well, when I put it out on Twitter that I wanted to write a book from a Black perspective, a high school friend of mine, she introduced me to uh, um, the illustrator, Jessica Jones. And um, just talking to her, I was just, I gave her my story and just hearing her ideas, I knew she would be the right person, just seeing different some of her illustrations from her previous work, I knew she would be the perfect person. I imagine you have read the book to your own children. What has been their response? My four-year-old son, he um, smiled. He was just excited to see himself in a book. He just kept wanting to go back to the uh, one of the first pages where 
I'm holding my youngest son and he's next to me. And as I read it to him, the, you can see the, in the illustrations of the children, the boys are a resemblance of my son. So he kept asking, is that me? Is that me? <laughs> and I was letting him know, yes, Andy. Uh, he kind of got a little uh, nervous. I know he's four, but it was when he's uh, married and when he starts a family. And he said, I, I have a son. And I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, hopefully. So it was just, I know he's young to kind of understand, but he uh, he just enjoyed it. He loves to look at the book and he uh, tells, you know, people that come and buy our house that that's my book. That's that's my book that, you know. Look, I'm famous and I'm only four. <laughs> right. <laughs> How about your older son? He's my oldest, my four-year-old, and oh. I have a six-month-old. Oh, my. Well, I don't know if he is able to comment on the book yet, but I that he responds to being told a story and being held close in your lap and looking at pictures. <laughs> yes. I just want I also wanted to something for them to give to their kids, you know, when they were when they start a family to look, my dad wrote this book, you know, when I was young and maybe encourage them to write something for their kids. Author Daryl Farley speaking about his children's book, I Will Be Here. In his paintings, performance art, and academic work, the interdisciplinary artist Dr. Fahamu Peku addresses concerns around contemporary representations of black men. He explores how these images impact both the reading and performance of black masculinity. A new installation of Peku's work is on view now at Hambridge Cross-Pollination Art Lab. Dr. Fahamu Peku, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. It's great to hear your voice and great to be back on the show and to speak to your audience. Thank you for having me. Always a joy. The new exhibition is titled The Space Between. What does that refer to? The Space Between refers to the sort of what I call a a, a gap or, or chasm that exists within the communication that a lot of Black men have with one another. You know, there's often a uh, perception that within Black masculinity, within expressions of Black masculinity, that there's only animosity and competition and, you know, in the case of Black men, specifically violence, you know. But that hasn't necessarily been my experience with the the men in my community, especially amongst my immediate friends and family. You know, it's, it's, it's very much a space of love and support and affirmation. And, and you know, I wanted to to create a space for those kinds of dialogues to be not just imaged, but also normalized. Hmm. I'm intrigued because what came to mind immediately when thinking about Black camaraderie was using the term brother for endearment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you're talking about something that's pejorative. Yes and no. Uh, I think that Certainly, you know, that the, the expression of, of calling another Black man that's not necessarily related to you, your brother, 
speaks of that kind of endearment and intimacy. But there's also the the absence of of actual expressions where you know terms like love and you know uh, gestures of care and, and touch and you know all these kinds of things are considered rare or considered foreign, right? I, I think for a lot of black men, myself included, you know those kinds of expressions were not a common thing, you know, and you know especially in these times when we talk about some of the issues plaguing the Black community and specifically Black men, we need to know that we are loved. We need to hear that. We need to show that. We need to display that and model that. Because, you know, as, as Bell Hooks talks about, it's the, the radical self-love that ultimately becomes the greatest form of resistance. Yes. How would you describe the installation? So the installation is comprised of two primary pieces. There is a interactive digital display. It takes the form of a mirror. And this is really um, crucial to the project because the, the, the idea is being able to see ourselves in others, right? Um, and so the, when you walk into the space, you confront this mirror, you see yourself reflected, but as you get close enough to it, it actually triggers a playback. And within the mirror are embedded uh, video portraits of black men who look you directly in the eye and say, I see you, I am you, I love you. And then there is also a 20-minute uh, documentary that features the, the subjects who um, are, the, are the models in the, the digital piece, talking about expressions and experiences that they've had with other Black men and these sort of expressions of affirmation and love. Famu, who were these men featured in the film? Did they volunteer? Were they friends or family? Uh, yeah, they were all uh, volunteers. Back in the fall of, of 2020, I did an open call for Black men to submit, you know, their headshots and uh, interests in this project. And we had over 80 submissions from Black men across the spectrum from, you know, 20 to 60 years old. And we did a, a brief sort of interview process with them and narrowed it down to 15 final subjects for the project. Some of them are men that I know, but most of them I only met through uh, this project. Ah, how did you decide what questions to ask them? Well, the questions were really sort of straight to the point, and it was really a around what does the idea of love not only mean to you, but how does it manifest for you? How do you express that to the men in your life? Uh, how have you encountered that from the men in your life? Like. The, the main idea for me was to really think about the ways in which love can be a transformative and healing agent for so much of the trauma and pathologies that exist within our community. And it's something that, you know, it seems so simple, but it's often greatly complicated to the point that, that we don't even consider it because it, just the idea of love can, can seem daunting to some people because of some of the, the um, impositions of like the toxic masculinity, you know, expressions of love and, and concern or compassion are considered weak or feminine, right? And so a lot of men are often put off or reject opportunities or even the need to have those kinds of expressions. As I was prepping for our conversation, something that came to mind was that magnificent moment in August Wilson's play, Fences, with 
the moment when James Earl Jones responds to his son saying, you never liked me. Yes, that scene is such a powerful, powerful scene. And, and, and again, it really, really sort of models what I'm, what I'm referring to when I talk about the sort of toxicity that exists within Black masculinity specifically. You don't even have the time to, to think about, you know, love because you're so busy battling these other demons that are at your heels every day. And does some of that reflect a concern for appearing weak or feminine, equating this softer quality with something effeminate? Yes, most certainly. In fact, you know, in, in the uh, documentary, one of the, the brothers who's speaking, his name is um, Ed Garns. He's a, um, a good friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. We've worked together on a, a number of projects, but he makes a comment in the documentary where he talks about within Black masculinity, oftentimes to, to find expressions of love, you have to be able to read between the lines, right? If your lights are on, that's Black man love. If you got food on the table, it's Black man love. You got money for your sports or extracurricular activity, you know, that's that Black man love, you know? Um, they may not say it necessarily in words. They may not model it necessarily by like, you know, being tender or, you know, anything like that, but in their actions, in their work, in this kind of uh, uh, stoic devotion that love is, is expressed. But at the same time, it, it's also, I think there's such harm in not being able to express and articulate and, and, and open up into that space. You know, again, historically, Black men have, have had so many oppressions and traumas levied against them that something as simple as love has, has been almost inaccessible. You don't have time for it because you, you're constantly trying to shield yourself from all of the other dangers uh, in the world. But at the end of the day, for me, love is the thing that ultimately protects you, protects you from all of those things. And so it's such an irony that exists there. So that would be your answer to the question, what is love? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think love is strength. It is resilience. It is healing. Love is medicine. Was there a certain audience you wanted to target through this installation, specifically Black males, white audiences, both? <laughs> well, certainly both. I, I mean, I, I certainly try to think of all of my projects in, in terms of you know, engaging audiences regardless of, you know, race or gender or, you know, sexuality or whatever it may be. But I'm definitely and very, very deliberately and intentionally having a conversation with Black men through this project because I think it's just so necessary. The impetus for creating this actually came out of a, an experience that I had um, a couple years ago on a panel with the authors uh, Jason Reynolds and Damon Young. We were doing a panel as a part of the Black Star Film Festival in Philadelphia, and the panel was, was listed as a, a conversation about the ways that we image Black masculinity in our respective works. But it ended up being more of session on vulnerability. Like the three of us sat there and shared stories, you know, that were just really, really intimate. Personally, for me, it was profound to hear some of the uh, experiences that Jason and, and Damon share, particularly around expressions of love. Like, for example, um, Jason told a story about this crew of friends that he's had since he was eight or nine years old. 
who have always been quite comfortable with saying to one another, I love you. And to have the love and brotherhood that they share also save them, you know, um, certain uh, instances. Like he shared a story about one time, one of his friends that's, that was in the crew got jumped uh, by some guys and the guy got his hand, the friend got his hand on a gun and he wanted to go get retribution. But the crew showed up and surrounded him and was like, yo, that's, that's not what we do. We don't, we don't do that. You know, the gun thing, we don't do that. You know, Damon talked about, you know, his father being the more uh, emotive parent, you know, like more so than his mom, his father was the, the soft, gentle one. And just listening to both of their stories made me realize, perhaps more saliently, that I didn't grow up in a place where anybody told me that they loved me, men or women. And it was, you know, something that I had to uh, learn to accept, but also learn how to perform, you know, because I didn't grow up with expressions of love. It was very difficult for me to express love to others, you know, that, that I cared about. And it was also difficult for me to receive that. And so this project, you know, is really about trying to get to a place where we, where, where those kinds of expressions between amongst uh, Black men are normal, that they're not exceptional, that they're not something that is, that is considered like extreme, but it is something that we do every day, hmm. all day, and that we do it comfortably. In addition to the video installation, in addition to the film, the project features panel discussions. On February 20th, one of those discussions was held with Black Men Smile. It's such a great name. What does that organization do? So Black Men Smile is an, an organization that was founded by my good friend Carlton Mackey who I believe is also a good friend of the show. Yes, um, we've chatted. <laughs> uh, and Black Men Smile is an organization that really does uh, a lot of the work that I'm addressing in the space between. They do this throughout a number of projects that they have. It's a platform about radical expressions of self-love and self-love as a form of resistance. And again, you know, just this idea that is projected of black men being like violent and stoic, you know, um, black men smile is like the exact opposite of that. You know, it celebrates, you know, the camaraderie and brotherhood. It celebrates expressions of intimacy and, and, and care between black men. And it's it images black men smiling, literally, which is something that we don't often see, which, you know, if you think about it, it's actually kind of surreal as well. But it's really about expressions of, of truth and love between black men. Mm. This discussion with the organization Black and Smile was a few days ago. Is there a way we can view these conversations? Yes. So the first conversation is archived on my YouTube page, which uh, has my name, Fahamu Paku. Um, you can also access it through like Facebook on my page as well. And yeah, it was a really powerful conversation. I really do wish that everyone will go and rewatch this uh, event. It was powerful. The room was filled with smiles as well as tears and just love. It was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had, being witness to it. Wow. We spoke last summer, shortly after the horrific death of George Floyd and our nation's heightened reckoning with racial injustice. After nearly nine months of 
mobilizing and protests and organizations making policy changes in response to these injustices. What progress do you think has been made, if any, Fahamu? I think the fact that the conversations continue to persist is somewhat affirming, right? I think that, you know, certainly during the height of the, the, the resistance last summer, everyone was scrambling and racing to try to figure out ways to contribute or create campaigns or, or uh, give money or do whatever they could to support racial healing or progress. That's not something that is, is new. Whenever there's a, a flare up, people are quick to try to find a, the quickest way to sort of douse the flames and, and normalize relations again, like, like as quickly as possible. But I have seen sustained uh, engagement from a number of, of um, entities and institutions to really try to have a, a diligent conversation about race relations in the country. I think we still have a long way to go, I should say, but I'm encouraged by the fact that people are continuing to to try to have these conversations. I think we've seen a number of spaces re-examine their, their mission statements and re-examine their uh, programming and re-examine their, their image to try to be current um, and to try to be uh, empathetic um, to the racial situation in this country. But again, I think that there's still a long way to go. I think you know, there's still a great deal of discomfort that, that comes with having these conversations that some people are unwilling to do or to unwilling to, to put themselves in that space of discomfort. But it's in that discomfort that we learn and grow. And it's in that uneasiness that we can find, you know, meaningful resolve to the challenges that, that face us. But I think ultimately, the biggest thing that, that we took away from that moment last summer was the fact that now people are listening where they may or may not have wanted to listen before. I think it, it's not unheard of that, that people would dismiss some of the claims of like racial disparity and injustice and you know all these different kinds of things that, that you might hear coming out of the black community. But after last summer, I think it became very, very evident that the things that have been argued and complained and, and, and rallied against are true in their living, breathing, entities that have to be confronted and have to be deconstructed. Artist Dr. Fahamu Peku, his new installation, The Space Between, is on view through March 6th at Hambidge Cross-Pollination Art Lab. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.